I never thought I'd ever have to worry about coming face to face with a polar bear, but that's the situation I found myself in this past October. It was 9 p.m. on a Friday night on an island in the Arctic, 4,000 miles from my home in Tucson, Arizona, and less than 700 miles from the North Pole. Some locals walk around with rifles to ward off those polar bears, an accessory I'm very much aware that I'm lacking right now. I'm stumbling around in the dark looking for my hotel, except the walk isn't short and I'm very much lost on the edge of town. There are few roads for cars in Longyearbyen, and the rest of it is covered in snow, so I'm feeling disoriented. My feet and my hands are frozen solid. I am not running into a single soul. Everything here is so foreign, but there's also something very familiar about this place. I'm at the center of another complex story about fisheries, so much so that even this remote town in the Arctic is connected to forces much, much bigger. And that's why I've come to Norway, to see what's going on with its fishing industry. It's one that's caught up in the politics of the war in Ukraine and with changing fish migration patterns due to climate change. And that's affecting one of the world's most ubiquitous fish, cod. This is The Catch, a podcast from foreign policy about the seafood we eat and the impact it can have on our world. I'm Roxandra Guidi. In our first season, we learned about squid off the coast of Peru. And in season two, we focused on the totuaba, a kind of croaker fish, and the vaquita porpoise in the Gulf of California, Mexico. And now I'm in the coldest, most northern point I've ever been to. Here's season three, episode one, In Cod We Trust. So fish don't respect political borders. They cross boundaries all the time. This is Sarah Glasser, an oceans expert at the World Wildlife Fund. Sarah's job is to keep an eye on the seas and look for places where things are going off track. Well, I usually use the word fisheries conflict, that it's some kind of dispute over a fisheries resource. Fisheries conflict is a pretty broad term and can mean lots of things. It could be arguing over a new type of fisheries management, say, drawing borders for a new marine park or marine protected area. Or it can also be deadly conflict. And we've seen deadly conflict over fisheries at an international level between countries, sometimes including militaries, but oftentimes just including conflict between two fishing vessels. Or even community level conflict, whereby there might be other sources of tension or instability in communities that sometimes spills over. Maybe fisheries are a precipitating event or disagreement over fisheries becomes wrapped up in larger tensions. Sarah takes a holistic global look at places where people depend on fish, and she finds that many of the conflicts are unique to a particular region. But she has found a common denominator. It's usually triggered when fish stop swimming where they're supposed to, when their migration patterns change. According to Sarah's own World Wildlife Fund, in the future, 
Around 50% of fish stocks around the world are expected to move in unprecedented ways due to climate change. They will be seeking out cooler waters, just like humans, I think, on land are going to be seeking out cooler places to live as well. One of the reasons that these rapid changes cause conflict is because we've had similar approaches to managing them, similar bilateral and multilateral agreements around international management when fish stocks cross borders. We've had that set up since you know, going back to the 70s, 60s, and that's what we're used to. And it kind of worked for a while, but all of those institutions and treaties and management plans are being challenged right now, and so we're scrambling. To be clear here, the we Sarah is talking about is not the World Wildlife Fund per se, but more the royal we, the all of us we, who are trying to figure out the future in this climate crisis era. The further north or south from the equator, the faster we're seeing the impacts of global warming. So how do we equitably share this resource, fish, which are rapidly changing their migration patterns? And when you look at the situation in the Arctic specifically, there's a lot at stake here, especially for those whose livelihoods and traditions depend on fishing. It's going to make people mad. Some people will feel like they are losing access to a resource they've had that has been passed down from generation to generation. This is a nice boat. Is this your own? This is pretty similar to what I heard when my reporting partner Eskild and I headed to the northern city of Vatsa. So the fjords east it's super windy outside. Did I mention it's cold? These fjords in the very northern part of the country just got their first snow of the season, which means it's prime king crab fishing season. Eskild and I are at one of the fishers' docks with Willie Peterson, a tall and gentle guy in his early 40s with gray hair and blue eyes. He's showing us his boat which is a typical vessel for traditional fishers here, about 12 meters or 40 feet long. Willie invites us aboard and shows us inside the cabin, pours us some fresh coffee. Norwegians love their coffee black, like I do, fortunately. Fishing is in his blood, he says. It started with his great-grandfather, as far as he knows. I think... Uh... His parents or grandparents, um, they came from, some of them come from Karelia, which is now a Russian side, but was Finnish, emigrated here and started as fishermen. And some are from other parts of Europe, actually, or Norway. And that's on my mother's side, so they've been fishers all their lives. Willie went to college and studied sociology. There's this tradition of doing two jobs here, to complement fishing for whenever times get rough. You should try to tell her about your master's degree because the thesis were very interesting. Oh, you yeah? were studying the, 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 the power structure within the fishing management. Yeah, yeah. That's Eskild. He and Willie go back at least 25 years. Uh, you know, you have all the policymakers saying one thing, ensuring more local uh, management and trying, you know, to build up on the culture side of the, on the fisheries. Northern Norway is the part of the country where traditional fishing goes back a long time. The Semi people, better known for reindeer herding, have been fishing cod in these fjords for centuries. So have the Kaveni people, Willie's ancestors, a Finnish ethnic minority. 
But since the 90s, Willie tells me, fisheries management hasn't done enough to respect traditional cultures. Well, the policies always change somewhere, ensuring that the bigger one got more quotas, the bigger one got more capital, the bigger one got more power inside the fisheries management. Um, this course is just continued and continues and continues, still today. Small-scale fishing has become more challenging for families like Willie's, not just because of changing migration patterns among some species, like cod, but also because there are more people in the fishing business, with bigger boats, more capital, and as he says, more lobbying power. Norwegians' connection to their waters is very strong. They have around 16,000 miles of coastline. The sea is always there, no matter where you look. This deep attachment to the sea is felt by Anne Kristen Jorgensen, too. And Kristen is a fisheries and Russian policy expert at the Fridtjof Nansen Institute in Norway, also known as FNI. She knows what it's like when a community is sustained by fishing. My parents come from a, a small fishing village even further north and east to the town where I grew up. So we used to spend our summers there, and I still often do. And that village is completely dependent on the fisheries. And Kristen has insight from both Norway and Russia, having previously worked in Moscow, ironing out fishing rights issues from her post at the Norwegian embassy. She understands that it's critical for both sides to figure out a solution that feels sustainable. You have to manage them jointly to make the management regime work, to avoid what is termed the tragedy of the commons. Because if, if Norway were to uh, exploit the fish in its own zone and manage that fish, and the same in Russia, then one party's uh, efforts to manage the stock sustainably might be undermined by the other. Generally speaking, the fish start their lives along the Norwegian coast, where they spawn. After that, the Gulf Stream carries them northeast into Russian waters, where they spend a portion of their lives growing larger. When they're of spawning age, they start the migrational route between the Barents Sea and the coastal waters of northern Norway. The richest fishing grounds for cod and some other species are in the western part of the sea, in no uh, Norwegian waters. So this is why the two countries need each other. The big fish are caught in Norway, but they grow up in Russia. So prior to the establishment of these economic zones, both Russians, or then Soviets, and Norwegians were fishing primarily in the western parts of the sea. And then when this cooperation was set up, the parties agreed that this would be on the basis of mutual access. That was good for them, because uh, those fisheries were more economically efficient, but also more sustainable because they target the large fish. That was much better for Norway as well. It's a symbiotic relationship, or at least it has been for some decades. But during my trip to Norway, Eskild and I noticed some cracks in this alliance. We're in Kirkenes. It's a small port city on the northeastern tip of Norway, where people can see Russia from their backyards. The border is only a 15-minute drive from here. 
Eskil tells me that a decade ago, you could really feel the Russian influence in this town. There were stores with signs written in both Cyrillic and Norwegian. You could hear Russians spoken down the street. But that changed with the war in Ukraine. I think like this city is changing identity, you know. And there's a lot of Ukrainians here too, of course. So. Wow, so you think they would have changed the names of things to make them... Um... What, what, what they did, they had like signs trying to promote tourism from Russia. Right. Like, like you're welcome. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but right now, I think it's just like things are changing. Uh, I think the Russians must feel alienated more and more. We're making our way to Kirkenes port, and we pass a statue at the top of a hill. It's a man on a pedestal, a Russian soldier holding a rifle. We can see the colors of the Russian flag, white, red, and blue on wreaths that are laid at his feet. This same statue, but many times bigger, sits in a square in Murmansk, the biggest Russian city on the other side of the border. That one is called Alyosha. So for me, this is like Alyosha in Murmansk, which is huge, you know, it's just little. This is Mini Alyosha. This is Malinki. Alyosha. Malinki Alyosha. Eskil translates Mini Alyosha's plaque for me. To the, to the Soviet Commonwealth, brave soldiers in memory of the liberation of Shirkines, 1944. Since October, this yeah. monument has become pretty controversial. During World War II, the German army used Kirkines as a base from which to attack Murmansk. By 1944, as the Germans were retreating, they burnt most of Kirkenes and nearby villages down to the ground. Around 45,000 Norwegians were forcefully relocated in this region. Within a couple of months, the Soviet Red Army entered northern Norway and liberated Kirkenes from German control. Both countries sharing a border saw the benefits of getting along starting in the late 80s, as the Iron Curtain was falling. Perestroika was underway. Then, in 1993, came the Barents Cooperation, an agreement between the two countries that opened up lines of communication. Russian trawlers have been coming to the port since to unload their catch or to get necessary repairs. When we finally arrive at the port, we see the gate is open, but no one's around. I'm kind of surprised we're just walking in here. The most places now we can see some signs in Russian for the main office and for the ship repair companies catering to the Russian trawlers. But there's only one large trawler docked there where there used to be many more on any single day. So we are at the harbor in Kirkenes, and there is apparently only one Russian ship that's being repaired, uh, but no other ships are allowed in port. And there is a Norwegian intelligence vessel docked very close to the Russian one. It's this huge white ship called Marjata. It's got um, it's got all these domes and security equipment, cameras, sensors. It's also flying the flag of the Norwegian intelligence service featuring a coat of arms with two blackbirds facing away from each other. What are those, crows? Actually, I had it wrong. They're ravens. What are they? Hugin and Munin. Hugin and Munin. That was the crows of Odin. 
with who is who is the chief god in the Norrin mythology. Oh, okay. So okay. Hugin and Munin used to see everything and hear everything in his in his uh, realm. So the mm -hmm. Russian intelligence service are using Hugin and Munin, those two crows, as their symbol. Wow, cool. Yeah. Sort of threat. <laughs> <laughs> Hugin and Munin mean thought and mind in Norwegian. They're the crows, uh, the ravens, that bring information to the Norse god. It's hard to know what this intelligence ship is doing next to the Russian one. We read on the news that it just got there that morning. But it's becoming clear that the cooperation is under stress. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has upset the balance. New sanctions first imposed by the EU and now followed by Norway have meant that the Barents' cooperation is officially over. The only formal cooperation between the two countries now is over fisheries management and rescues at sea. It's yet another example of how Russians and even Russian interests are suffering from Putin's war in Ukraine. Here's Anne Kristen again. The problem is Russian fishers do uh, deliver part of their catch still in Norway, in Norwegian ports. And like there's nothing in the, this management cooperation that stipulates that Russian vessels have a right to either call in Norwegian ports or deliver fish to Norway. But they fear that there might be reactions that could have negative effects like for the cooperation. So that is still an issue that is subject to some debate. And uh, I would say that it would be very irrational on Russia's part to put a stop to that cooperation. But then the invasion of Ukraine was irrational. It feels like we're witnessing in real time the end of an era of friendship between Russia and Norway. While we're in Kirkenes, we meet up with Thomas Nielsen. He's the editor of the Barents Observer an independent online newspaper covering the Barents region in the Arctic. Between 2003 and 2015, he also worked for the Barents Cooperation. His office looked out to the sea and the docks. Yeah, if, if you see that boat over there, yeah. that's the last uh, Russian trawler. They have uh, got a... Uh, because Russian trawlers are sanctioned. That's the Russian trawler we'd seen next to the Norwegian intelligence vessel just a few minutes earlier. It's also the last one... Starting this week, no more Russian trawlers will be allowed in for maintenance. Norway is in a big dilemma. Uh, I mean, we are, we are a very, very small state, uh, neighboring a, uh, not only a biggest nuclear superpower, but an unstable nuclear superpower. Uh, Norway's traditional foreign policy to the Soviet Union and Russia is that when there is a storm, sit down in the boat, wait, it will go over. Uh, today, we, people or the foreign ministry see that it will not go over. And uh, maybe we are afraid that the boat will capsail. Uh, so for Norway, it's a, it's a very difficult period of time. When there are new sanctions, they're first imposed by the United States and Europe, and then a month or two or three later, Norway follows. Mm. Well, I mean, now all the neighboring countries to Russia has closed the border for uh, Russian private vehicles to enter Europe. Started with Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Lithuania, and uh, now Estonia, and then uh, later on Finland. And uh, from midnight uh, today, yesterday, uh, also Norway closed the border. But we were not the first. We follow Europe and NATO, uh, but uh, we don't want to be the one uh, raising the flag. 
So in the time that Eskild and I were in Kirkenes, not only were Russian trawlers no longer allowed to get repairs at port, but the border close to private vehicles. Yes, uh, a lot of the economy in the town was quite based on cooperation with Russia, shopping, uh, tourism, or not tourism, but travel, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the shipyard you can see uh, just outside the window here. Uh, but uh, now when the shipyard is not allowed to take uh, Russian vessels anymore, uh, most of the shopping is uh, ended. After our chat with Thomas, we get back in the car and drive towards the border. I'm used to the U.S.-Mexico border, just 40 minutes from where I live, where lines are long and it's a maze of infrastructure and walls. But I couldn't see any of that here, just a two-way road leading you into a roadblock. We decided not to get out of the car or to drive into Russia, so we pulled a U-turn and headed towards the small village of Svanvik in the Pasvik Valley. Isn't this... This is not orange. Is this orange? No, it's not We wanted to hear from someone with a different perspective, someone who really believes in this Norway-Russia cooperation. Except we got lost on the way to his house. No, 19. No, can be. I should just put it in the... Yeah, let's do that. Instead of us trying to... Asmund Rost is a retired principal of the Pasvik Folkeskule, or Folk High School, a Norwegian and Russian cooperation school that taught young Norwegians about Russian culture and history, and vice versa. For decades, he worked hard to counteract bias and prejudice against Russians. It's important then to present the enemy, Russia, as awful as possible, all the time. And this was a part of my growing up. People on the other side of the river, they were not good people. Not good people. But when I was so happy to meet them, I discovered they were just like us. Osman tells us he's been attacked on social media over his views supporting this cooperation. We have a neighbor. We cannot choose our neighbors. And the government has said to us for 30, 40 years, please establish cooperation between Russia and Norway. Do what you can. Uh, create the enterprises. Uh, contact people, people-to-people -people cooperation. And we did it. And now they tell us, please destroy it. The tide has shifted. Yeah. Osmond feels like the war in Ukraine and the reaction to Russia will set his work back. There's no appetite for dialogue anymore. And now we are back from the, to the beginning. Mm. It's close. It's dark. Do you think it's, it's back to the same place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's worse than it was really? How is during it worse? the Cold War. It's worse. How is it worse? Because the, the, the propaganda is so immense. Every day you hear negative things. And if you try to speak, as I do now, a little bit of understanding uh, towards the Russian, so then you are a Putinist, go to Russia, so, so the, 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 the room for discussion has been very narrowed. Now it's not a room at all. So the chill in the air here is more than just the fact that we're in the Arctic. It's because of the general unease people feel here, a ripple effect from the war. 
no one knows what could happen next. And there's a historic precedent for fishing disputes here to get out of hand. Just 50 years ago, fishing trawlers off the coast of Iceland had to be accompanied by warships during the so-called Cod Wars. The foreign minister of Iceland said this morning that his government's request for the withdrawal of British naval vessels had so far fallen on deaf ears. With respect to the foreign minister, that, I think, does less than justice to my government. That's next time on The Catch. And that's it for part one of The Catch. Our show is a production of Foreign Policy in partnership with the Walton Family Foundation. Our production team includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, and Avon Munoz. Special thanks to my co-reporter, Eskild Johansson. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review and subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, or head over to foreignpolicy.com, where you can listen to our other podcasts and sign up for our newsletter. Thanks for listening. I'm Roxandra Guidi. See you next week.